A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One day I was kind of just walking around and I was in downtown Boston and there was a sex toy shop there. And it's not my first time there. And I remember walking in just looking for a product for myself. And when I walked in and, you know, started looking at all the different aisles, I was just completely underwhelmed at all the crappy products. Hi everyone, I'm Amy. I'm Jamie and this is Clever. Today we're talking to industrial designer T. Chang. T is co-founder and creative director of Crave, a San Francisco startup that designs elegant, sophisticated, and thoughtfully designed personal pleasure products. Yes, by personal pleasure, we mean sex toys. But the term sex toy doesn't really encompass the innovative and elevated nature of what T is doing. And besides, the adult novelty industry is way overdue for an upgrade in terms of product offerings, don't you think? T designs products for females from a female perspective. And while we're sad that this is still kind of a novel idea for 2018, we are super excited about what she's doing and why she's doing it. She wants all of us to own our pleasure. And maybe, just maybe, that will lead to world peace. We are so in. Let's talk to T. My name is T. Chang. I am designer, co-founder of Crave. We are based in San Francisco, California. I am doing what I do because I believe people should have the sex life they want, and shame, stigma, and bad products should not be in the way of that pursuit. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. High fives for that. <laughs> Praise the <laughs> Lord. <laughs> we always like to go back to the very beginning. So tell us about your childhood and your family dynamic and where you grew up. Okay. My whole family moved to the States from Taiwan to Georgia when I was six. My parents chose Georgia because we already had family here. My aunt was already here, and she had a furniture business. And even though my dad's a microbiologist, he has a master's from Texas A&M, but the salary for immigrants, you know, in the 80s was just, just not that great. So he joined the furniture business and eventually started his own. Do you remember living in Taipei? I do. I do. I went to second grade there up until second grade. And so I can still speak it fluently, vernacular stuff, and I can still read some of it. So knowing that has been extremely helpful in my job. That's a big transition to make for a second grader. Do you remember what you felt like? Did you feel like a fish out of water? Just that whole transition was hard. 
I remember being in ESOL, you know, which is the class they stick you in when you mm-hmm. don't speak English. And I remember learning my basic alphabets. And I remember one time in second grade, I was asked to write my name in a book just to like, you know, this book belongs to, you know, you write your name. And I didn't know how to write my name in English. So I just wrote in Chinese. And I remember it causes like, oh my God, you know, they, they realized I was not clearly up to speed. So they put me in the ESL classes. And, and so most of the 80s, I was learning English. I watched a lot of cartoons, Woody Woodpecker, you know, Jam and the Holograms. Do you remember mm-hmm. that, Jam and the Holograms? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And I, I love Thundercats. Um, oh, yeah. So I, yeah, so that was kind of like my my 80s. And so a lot of people are sometimes surprised when, like, oh, you haven't watched this? You haven't watched this? I'm like, yeah, I didn't really speak English, you know, and I didn't really know. So it really wasn't until the 90s that I kind of came into cultural consciousness, you know, like MC Hammer, Madonna, Paula Abdul, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's really cool. So as a young kid in school and in, in a new place, were you mm-hmm. artistic or creative? Did any of that kind of come out at that point? So I grew up in a like a small town called Duluth, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there were hardly any other Asian kids in school. I mean, it was a very white, conservative, Christian town. And being Asian, you know, non-religious, you know, my family's not religious, I, I never felt like I kind of belonged to any particular group. Mm-hmm. I mean, generally, people were polite to me, but I never really kind of felt understood. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of went in kind of myself and started focusing on some of my hobbies and things that I kind of connected with, which was art. And luckily, you know, my parents, they're, they're all for it. I mean, my mother's side of family had a strong artistic streak. I had a couple of aunts and uncles who were art professors. And so my parents just thought, it was, you know, it was, it was fine to have it as a hobby. And they supported it, you know, for me to do this in my spare time and in high school, you know, as electives. But they definitely were not supportive of me going to art school. I mean, because of the whole starving artist thing, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, a couple of things. When we won, we didn't have a lot of money, so we couldn't have afforded me to go. And two, my dad's exact words were, I think it's important to be able to pay for your own food. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of, you know, in a way, put it in perspective for me, okay, you know, and luckily, I had a scholarship to Georgia Tech, and, you know, and from there, I stumbled onto industrial design. I mean, my parents didn't really know what I was doing with industrial design. They just cared that I, I was going to a good school and that, you know, that should make me employable and I should be able to pay for my own food. Yes. Well, <laughs> so, you know, as your parents, those are pretty core issues for them to worry about. Yes, it's completely legit. <laughs> <laughs> but before you got to Georgia Tech, you know, you had to live through teenagerdom. And the teenage years mm-hmm. are frequently fraught with identity struggles and, you know, learning where the boundaries are and trying to push them. I'm wondering what your teenage years were like. Yeah. So I think I was always an outsider Mm -hmm. because like I said, I was in a town that just, you know, the people didn't look like me. I didn't really identify with them. They didn't really identify with me. And so being an outsider became a place that I, you know, have come to know very well. And I think it really helped me to think for myself and make judgments and decisions without peer pressure. And peer pressure is easier when you don't have any friends. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't really have any, I didn't have any friends, you know. So 
I think it was, it was incredibly formative in me becoming an adult because I became at ease with having different opinions and not, you know, being kind of part of the majority and looking at things and issues that people didn't talk about. I never really thought about peer pressure from the perspective of it not being such a burden if you don't really identify with people around you. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, you just didn't have feedback. You didn't have anyone telling you what you should or shouldn't do. You, you know, I saw what was going on around me, but because of just I didn't really have that many close relationships, I, I was able to make decisions on my own. And mm. I felt in a way more free. Yeah, you know, it was kind of lonesome, but at the same time, I, I was very comfortable with just being able to make that kind of decision. When you're in a town where you know, everyone's so different, and, you know, I wasn't religious, I was not athletic in any way. Yeah. And also, one of the reasons why it was so hard for, also for me to, you know, have friendships is that because my parents, you know, we struggled a lot, we didn't have a lot of money, my parents' store was a place where all the kids, so I'm the oldest of four siblings. We were all expected to work there on the weekends. Mm. So we weren't studying. We were at the store. So that, because of that, you know, there's, you know, all these parties I couldn't go to. I couldn't go to sleepovers. Right. You know, I never there was no, like, call. hanging at the mall all day on Saturday or something. No, there's just, just no, yeah, no, you know. And But so, you know, because of that, I, I think it just – kind of uh, helped me form a really, you know, insane work ethic because mm-hmm. I was always used to working a lot. My parents worked a lot and that really left, you know, really formed my work ethic. So I, I'm also really interested in your path from art to industrial design. So I know you studied industrial design at Georgia Tech, but did you start out in industrial design or did you start out in something totally different? I just had a scholarship. I actually only applied to one school that I knew we could kind of afford because I had a scholarship. So I was like, okay, I just, and I really didn't have very good, you know, high school counselors that, you know, told me that, honey, you should probably apply to more than one school because what if you don't get in, you know? (laughs) So, but luckily I got in and when I got in and it, it really happened this way, I looked at, opened up my the pamphlet, the catalog of all the different majors at Georgia Tech. You know, obviously it's a great technical school, but I was not interested in engineering. So I basically went down all the lists, like aerospace engineering, nope, electrical engineering, nope, computer science, nope. You know, and the last, and there's just all these other departments that I was just not interested in. And the only thing that was left was a school of architecture. And under that, there are two options. One was architecture and one was industrial design. And I knew what architecture was. So I was like, okay, well, you know, I'll design some buildings. Cool. So I signed up. So I started out declaring as an architecture major mm. for about maybe like a quarter. I had enrolled in the drafting classes. And we were just drawing straight lines with like a number two HB pencil, mm. like nonstop. Mm. And I was so bored. I was like, fuck <laughs> this. I was like, uh-uh. And so without even knowing what industrial design was, I was just like, okay, I'm not doing architecture, so where the hell industrial design is, I'm just going to have to fucking make it work. So, right. yeah, and l- I got super lucky that it totally worked out. Oh, wow. Can I just mention a side note? Jamie and I talk to people all the time who found their way to industrial design by accident because nobody told them what it was. They didn't know what it was growing up. Somehow, mm-hmm. we've got to get kids familiar with industrial design so they can be stoked about it. Absolutely. I mean, when I was graduating, I remember having a session with my high school counselor, you know, talking about your career. You take these, like, 
standardized test, mm-hmm. and it tells you like maybe what your personality is more suited for. And she's like, you know, you should think about being a secretary. What? And I was just, I was like, uh... what the hell? Like, what are we talking about here? And I was just like, I was like, this is BS. But then again, like I said, I never felt like anyone really understood me or you know related to me. So I didn't. I just took it with a grain of salt. I never really, even, you know, mm-hmm. like I didn't pay any attention and like was like, oh, I'm going to be the best damn secretary ever. Right. <laughs> yeah, but it's a rampant problem in that people in high school they have no idea about design, mm-hmm. and so yeah. I wish schools would do a better job reaching out and let kids know about all these amazing opportunities in design, mm-hmm. including industrial design. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. So after you studied industrial design, you ended up going abroad to London to study. And what did you study? Because you got a master's from RCA. Right. Was um, it also in industrial design? Well, so they don't actually have an industrial design program. They call it design product. So at the time, Ron Aaron was the headmaster. So Design Products was the platform where you made things. And I'm putting it very loosely because Design Products was a was a degree that it drew people of very different backgrounds, like artists, photographers, you know, industrial designers or architects. But ultimately, on in this platform, you had to make an object. And there were other platforms like Industrial Design engineering, which is much more engineering based. So we're a design product. Mm -hmm. So Ron Arad is a pretty famous furniture designer. What type of objects were the focus of this program? Well, RCA, they're kind of known for sort of allowing you to do sort of whatever you want. But whatever Mm -hmm. you did, it just had to be good. But my experience at RCA was, was kind of different. I remember the first few weeks after orientation, we all had to discuss with the head tutor, you know, our intent, what we want to focus on for the next two years. And at that point in time, you know, I already, I didn't go straight from Georgia Tech to RCA. I worked for a bit. I designed hairbrushes. I designed bicycles. So I had a little bit of an idea of what I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. it was very loose. I just knew I wanted to create products for women. And he looked at me with a totally blank stare and was like, well, if that's what you want to do, then I'm going to have to ask you to leave because there are only two female professors here and they're not even full time. What? I was like, what? what? Yeah, I was completely <laughs> flabbergasted. I mean, just because I want to focus my next two years on, you know, thinking about what it means to create products for women. It doesn't mean I have to have an entire staff of female professors. It just was, I was asking for permission to kind of focus on that. God, that's just such an example of the ignorance that people have when they think about products for women and like what it means to design from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, uh, wow. absolutely, okay. absolutely. And so, and at that time, I was young, and I, you know, like like being twenty five at the time, and I, you know, I just got to London, and you know, I, I was not ready to kind of stand up to the establishment and like fight, mm-hmm. fight it. You know, I was too just kind of intimidated. I was just like, I didn't know what to do. So, so basically, I changed my focus to furniture and manufacturing, and I graduated. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, it, you know, but in retrospect, I think that experience just kind of furthered my resolve to design products for women and support women in all that I do. So kind of round, roundabout way of eventually doing what I really wanted to do, but um, mm-hmm. a little longer. Yeah, but that really does highlight the fact that baked into the system, there is a lack of a female perspective 
in the products that are being generated into the world because it's not even being taught in school and it's not even being supported in school. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I it, would, it is mm-hmm. now to more of mm-hmm. an extent, but back then that episode in your life probably really did highlight for you a particular need in the market. Yeah, because I worked for a few years and I started to see how male dominated industrial design the, the profession is. And, mm-hmm. you know, from that, I realized so many things that we would think and assume were designed for women were not really, Mm -hmm. you know, they're really marketed towards women, but not really designed for women. And so, you know, that female perspective in things, in objects, in our environment, it, it needs to be there. And so for me, that was just sort of where I identified kind of the most good that I could do with the skill set that I have. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where I latched onto. So you were working after industrial design, designing hairbrushes. Were you working for a, a firm? And and what made you decide to go to London to study? Okay. When I was designing hairbrushes, I was working for Goody. So Goody is a manufacturer. Mm. They are owned by Newell Rubbermaid, which owns a lot of other consumer products like Lovelore, Graco, you know, almost half the things that we use in our home every day. So it was for Goody. So I was an in-house designer there. And I was there for just over two years. And there I helped lead a collection of hairbrushes that was eventually produced and got patents. I mean, it, you know, when we say hairbrushes, it's like, oh, it's just an everyday hairbrush. You know, it's not like super sexy, like uh, the latest Google phone or, you know, it's not like a laptop. But because it was just so humble, like an everyday needed item, that there just was not a lot of innovation in that space. So when I came in, I was able to bring a lot of, you know, new thinking uh, to that, and, and it was extremely rewarding. But I learned that being in a corporate environment was not good for me. And also after that, I went to Trek Bicycle, which is another large corporation. You know, corporations, they're extremely powerful. They can do a lot of good, but also just working in a corporate environment, I learned that, you know, I just didn't have time for the, you know, the politics, the egos, and all of that. And I kind of, after Trek, I was like, oh, man, is there more to working in industrial design than this? You know, I recognize that I was raised in the States, and so that's kind of the American perspective, the corporate perspective, what industrial design as an in-house designer looks like. And so I became curious about design globally. I wanted Mm. to learn more about what design means on a larger scale internationally. What does it mean in London? You know, what does it mean at RCA? So it's just to really get a better perspective on on design. Okay, so you figured out you don't really like corporate culture. You want to look at design from a global perspective. So you go to RCA, you graduate, then what? Are you like, what do I do now? Do you do exactly. your own thing? <laughs> no, that's exactly where I was after I graduated. I was like, okay, now what? And I got a kind of like a project offer from a furniture manufacturer in China. They're Taiwanese-based, and they want to design European-style furniture. So I was kind of commissioned to do a few pieces there. And I learned very quickly that there's really not much money in furniture design. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It was a great experience. However, it was just not something that I could pay my massive student loan bills with. <laughs> so um, <laughs> after that, I was like, okay, well, i got to figure out plan B. Then I got a job in New York, 
at a consultancy. I'm just a little, like, no-name consultancy, and I was just excited because, one, I was moving back to the States. I get to live in New York, and I wanted to try consulting because I've always been an in-house designer. So I moved to New York. In about 10 months, I was like, New York is not – I mean, I like New York now. I love visiting there and doing everything, but I did enjoy living there because I was, like, just steps away from Union Square. It was just nonstop people, and it's just – it was too much for me. It was too stressful for me. I then moved to Boston with a boyfriend, then-boyfriend at the time, and that's when I started just freelancing because I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. But I was at a point – this is also 2008, so this is a big recession. And mm-hmm. finding work was extremely hard. Finding interesting work was, like, impossible. So already I was in a position where, you know, really was not much work. And whatever work I could find, you know, there were, like, paying, you know, peanuts. I kind of made this decision in my head, like, okay, well, if I'm going to be paid very little for designing something I'm not interested in, why don't I just focus on something I'm actually interested in? and not be paid anything at all. So that's kind of what started my journey into sort of wandering into entrepreneurship and starting my first company. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. 
I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. That is interesting to me because I think when other people are in that position, sometimes they lean the opposite direction. They're like, well, if I'm going to be paid very little for designing something I'm not interested in, I'm just going to go where the money is. And instead, you went where your passion is. Yeah, you're exactly right. Because I I think maybe back to my childhood when I was working at my parents' store, you know, we're selling furniture. You know, people need furniture. It's good. You know, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But it was, there was just this great sense of kind of this lack of fulfillment. Mm. And for me to feel fulfilled, I have to feel like I'm making a difference in the world. Like we all have this super short time on earth and I wanted my time to just stand for something that could help others in, in any way that I am able and uniquely able to do. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of, because I love design so much that it actually hurts me when I have to do projects that is sort of against my moral compass. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, you know, like, yeah, it's like the job that you take, like, you know, because you have to pay the bills, but I, but there's no shame in it. There's, it's not, and I'm not poo-pooing, you know, like, it's not what that's about, but it's that for me, I knew for me to be fulfilled in the long term, I had to start moving myself in the direction of what I believed in and what I 
what also aligns with my moral compass as a designer. It sounds like you are willing to shelve at least temporarily the advice from your father that you should be able to pay for your own food. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, luckily, I mean, Boston, you know, is not as expensive as San Francisco or New York. (laughs) But yeah, no, you know, then again, it it was a hard time for everyone. You know, everyone was kind of struggling. And so, um, yeah, I mean, just... When you're idealistic like that, it, it's I get really tunnel vision and I just really focus on it. It's not like I wasn't eating. I had luckily support of you know close friends and family that really enabled me to to focus on this. When you decided to really throw yourself into something that could make a difference in the world, what did that look like and what did you land on? I didn't. I didn't know. I just knew loosely like I wanted to design products to help women to support women. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking, you know, my brainstorming just immediately went to things that are very, you know, feminine, like tampons, you know, menstrual pads. And and I was like, oh, but, you know, this is kind of limiting as far as design. There's only, like, three materials in there, you know, it's like cotton and whatever. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, maybe this is not, like, this is maybe not my calling. But then I, you know, started looking at other female-centric brands, and there just really wasn't any. I could not find... I scoured the web trying to find a female-focused company, and aside from things like birth control, you know, which is much more, you know, medical and not so much product, you know, I, I couldn't find a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So, so I was already in this headspace, and I remember one day I was kind of just walking around, and I was in downtown Boston, and there was a sex toy shop there. And it's not my first time there, and I remember walking in just looking for a product for myself. And when I walked in, and you know, started looking at all the different aisles, I was just completely underwhelmed at all the crappy products. I mean, I, I, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's everything you think it is, you know, it's the phallic stuff, it's the neon, you know, dildos, you know, and things like that. And, you know, as a designer, you know, I, I read into the design. They're, they're almost uh-huh. like cartoon products, too. Absolutely. They're like garish colors. They're in cheap materials that don't feel good next to your skin. They, Absolutely. They even, like, operate, like, power tools rather than something more sensual, you know? It's just... Exactly. Exactly. I mean, because as designers, we, we read it. It's not easy on the soul. No, it's not. It's not easy on the no. eyes. Either, you know? Can you imagine giving this to your girlfriend? Like, hey, you're you know, here you go. And like, what the fuck is yeah. this? You know, get that away from me. So... <laughs> You're exactly right. You know, us as designers, we read into these things, you know, the form, the material, the functionality, and it was so clear, you know, and to me that it just wasn't from a place of respect or understanding nor care about the user. I mean, after all, you know, the whole entire adult category is called novelty. You know that? It's called the adult novelty show. And I mean, a woman's orgasm is not a novelty. Thank you, sister. Oh, my God. That's a fantastic quote. (laughs) So, you know, that's when I decided to apply kind of the ethos that I learned as an industrial designer to to elevate the perception of sex toys and pleasure for women. I love it. And you are providing a much-needed public service. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. (laughs) Well, we have a great team, and I'm just happy to be part of, you know, part of this journey to help support this. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about how um, how this formulated into an actual business. It's a great question because, you know, so many people, they, they have sort of this thing they're interested in, and they have some ability. But the problem is they can't quite find a market demand 
And in order for something to become an actual business, you need to have the ability, the interest, and the market in order to form a proper mm-hmm. business. Without the market demand, you kind of sort of like have a hobby. So for me, I think I was lucky in that I, you know, found an area that suited my interest. You know, sex, you know, it's cool, you know, it's edgy. Also, it's in an area that was not saturated, like cell phones mm. or laptops. Mm-hmm. And I think if I wanted to, let's say, hey, I want to be the next, you know, Apple, I mean, I think the barrier to entry is way higher. So I don't think I could have gotten far as I did if I wanted to start in one of those very saturated markets. How I started was, I, I, honestly, I just simply started. I had a few thousand dollars you know, in savings, and I decided I wanted to work on sex toys. And I just started you know, sketching out some ideas. I bought some samples. I started sketching and ideating. And I got to a point where I needed to get them prototyped. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, in Boston, and just prototyping in general, it's not as accessible as it is today. It was still very expensive. So I decided to go to China to get my prototypes. And I ended up, I was only supposed to stay there for like just a few months. I ended up staying there for a year. And then I also launched the company from there. Oh. But basically, I went to get my prototypes. And after three or four months, I got one sample of each that looked like, felt like, you know, functioned like the real thing. But I only had one. Okay, one of these. And this is a really critical point in what type of products are we talking about? Vibrators or what prototypes? Oh, yeah. This company decided to start what's called Incognito. Uh And it was about bringing together the idea of sex toys and jewelry. And sex toys is obviously, you know, very taboo. And the form was awful. And jewelry was something on the completely opposite spectrum for me that was just well accepted. It was luxurious. And people felt good being gifted one and using one and wearing one. And so I kind of want to bring those two sentiments together. That became what I call foreplay jewelry. Okay. So these are jewelry that you can wear out that kind of had a functional side as well as a, you know, fun, playful side in the bedroom. Ah, okay. Okay. So you spent a year in China getting the prototypes. A few months in China. Right. Getting the prototype. Yeah. And at this point, now that I have the prototype, I was like, okay, before I invested any more time or money, I needed to have reality check. Because, you know, as designers, when we create things, we all think our stuff is the best, of course. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the reality is you really don't know if someone would actually pay money for it. So before I decided to move forward and commit to production, I needed to just make sure that this is something that actually, you know, has a market for. So I decided to go to one of the biggest adult novelty trade shows. This was in Berlin. And to meet with buyers. So these buyers, you know, they're pitched products all the time, and they easily tell people yes, no, and they know if it's something that they can sell. Mm-hmm. So I figured that they would give me very honest opinions. So I just told myself, look, let me just meet with them and see what they say, and that will give me a better gauge as to what I should do. Maybe, you know, if they don't like it, I can pivot. They, you know, love it. Okay, that's, that's awesome, just so that I know what I should do as the next step. Mm-hmm. So I met with five or six buyers and with just this one little you know, sample of each, I had like five samples of different products and their response was just overwhelmingly positive. Oh. They were like, if you had production of these things, I would place an order right now. Oh. And 
I, I, I didn't. I was very, I didn't read any business books. I didn't really know what I, you know, I was just kind of being me and saying, hey, this is what I want to do. And I have one sample of these and I don't have production, but, you know, I'm working on them. So even though I didn't get any purchase orders at that time, the response was just very encouraging. I could tell this is something that I felt they could sell. And so it felt like I, maybe I have something here. So after that, I went back to China and committed to production. And at the time, I didn't even have money for the production, the first batch. But this is one of the things that, you know, in, in anything you do when you build up a relationship and rapport, you build up trust. Mm-hmm. And so the factories that helped me create these samples, you know, they trusted me and I trusted them. And, you know, I told them, like, look, I went and talked to buyers. They really want this. But I don't have the money for the initial production. It was only, like, 250 pieces. It was, it was very small. But I was convincing that I'm good for it and that it'll be fine. And they, they believed me. And so they started production with this. And luckily, shortly thereafter, I got my first PO. Mm-hmm. And after that, another PO. And next thing I knew, the first batch immediately sold out. And so that I was able to pay for you know the initial batch and the next batch. So I started to just kind of get on a roll. So I did this for about a year and a half. And... You know, carrying on with my business, and I was at a trade show where I was showing my second collection, and that's where I met my co-founder, Michael, who actually started Crave, okay? So at this time, you know, I'm working at my own, my first company, which was Incognito, Mm -hmm. and then I meet Michael at this trade show who, even though he started Crave, but they didn't have any products. He, He had nothing designed. He spent, up until that point, just researching and listening to women because and this is one of the things that struck me about him was that he wasn't the typical guy who thought that they knew everything, you know, when it comes to designing cars. I mean, and That's he had enough self-awareness. <laughs> Absolutely. He had enough self-awareness to know that, hey, this could be a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. But there are way too many male voices in the industry already. He needed a female designer who was passionate about designing sex toys. And, oh, my God, hello, you know, that's me to a mm-hmm. T, right? Literally. And, and but yet I already started my company. So I couldn't, even though I loved his vision, I love, I was, we were completely spiritually aligned as to why we want to do this in the first place. So he ended up buying my, my company to bring me on board. So I was living in China at the time. And then when he bought my company, I moved to San Francisco. And since then, I've designed all of Crave's products. And how long ago was that? That was in 2010. Okay, so you've been at this for mm-hmm. a while now. <laughs> yeah, like I think I kind of was like, oh, going on nine years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested in, in the creative process, but also in the, the day-to-day aspects of the business of sex toys. I'm just interested in how you concept, how do you come up with new ideas, and then how do you you know, take those ideas and bring them to market. Are you listening to the people? Are you getting feedback about what they want? Are you going out and interviewing women? What is the creative process? Is it, does it come from within you or how does it work? Yeah, that's a good question. So no, it doesn't solely come from me. Ideas for new products can come from a variety of places, you know, the market, you know, seeing what's going on on the market, Mm -hmm. seeing what's missing from that. Sometimes it's from technology seeing what are some of the new capabilities that's out there and whether or not it makes sense. It can come from designers. It can come from people. It comes from a variety of places. But ultimately, what we believe in is that it is all about the user experience. So even though there are ideas that come from 
you know, technology or the market or myself. But we always hold that up to what does that mean for the user to figure out whether or not this is a project that we want for just even start. Because ultimately, you know, we don't we don't like to design product just because we need a new product. We're mm-hmm. not on that kind of schedule. Like just because, hey, you know, AI is the latest cool thing, you know, we do not have to immediately jump on AI. So all these things are very much filtered through the lens of what does it mean for the user experience. Mm-hmm. So everyone in the company, we're very much aligned on that. You know, when we have a, have a new idea, when we make decisions about customer service or about um, manufacturing, we always view it through what does it mean and how does that affect the user. So we're an incredibly user-centric company. So I have to ask, how do you get that user input? Like what does focus testing look like for <laughs> for sex products? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it is hugely important. Um, so like I said, because we're so user-centric, everything that we do, you know, we come up with ideas, we have concepts, we have prototypes, but ultimately, we always send it out multiple times to our users to do product testing, and that informs us about this product, whether or not we should continue, we should scrap it, or, you know, we should pivot, or what, what we should do. So, now, obviously, because of the intimate nature of our products, traditional user research does not cannot really apply. You know, we can't exactly say, hey, can we watch you use a vibrator for a little bit? You know, that obviously would be creepy, you know, and so... Yeah, it, 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 it presents new challenges that we, you know, that's just very different from traditional consumer products. Sure. And so we had to find a way to be able to, you know, test and get the information that we need while, number one, ensuring the user's privacy and comfort. So we have a process where we have, like, like a wait list of product testers who are friends of the company, friends of friends, or people who are close to the company, but that just really want to provide feedback. Okay, They're, Whenever we have a new product, we send out an email uh, to everyone, all anonymously, you know, and just letting them know that, hey, we have this product that we're looking to test. If you're interested, you know, let us know. And usually it's first come, first serve. So the first, like, 20, you know, 10, 30, whatever people that, that respond, you know, get to do their user testing. And what we do is we send out these products to them, so they're using them in the privacy of their own home, mm-hmm. and we then send out online questionnaires that are very open-ended, because when we do these tests, user testing, it's not that we have a hypothesis, like we're not looking to validate, because sometimes companies, they use user research as a way to validate what they already am going to produce. Mm-hmm. Right, right, sense? yeah. For us, we don't do that at all. And one of the things as like myself as a designer, I like I have no ego about this. I really just want people to love it. And I want this product to to work. You know, the thing with sex toys and vibrators is that there's not gonna be one product that works for everyone. Right. So the key is, yeah, as a designer, I have to figure out, okay, what is it about this product that really works for this user group? Or what is it that doesn't work? for you know, this user group, what, what are its strengths, what are its weaknesses, so that we can properly position the product as such, so that we don't overpromise and underdeliver. So by putting this out there and just trying to get very honest feedback, we then better know whether or not this product is worth continuing for development or we should just scrap it because it just doesn't work. 
Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, sexuality is such an individual thing that I can imagine Mm -hmm. that your user feedback is as individual. And so, yeah, you can't, you can't put a product out there and promise that it's going to do everything for everybody. No, not, I mean, not at all. I I think it's, I think it's ridiculous when brands tell you like, oh, the best orgasm ever, or like, you know, under three seconds, it's just, it's complete rubbish. And (laughs) everyone is so different. In fact, something that works for you one day may not work the next day. You know, it is completely so varied and so complicated and so multi-layered that I recognize that there's not that one product for everyone. So therefore, it is important to have a variety of products that do a variety of things. But you just have to be clear as to, you know, this tends to be more for people who need a lot of strength or power. You know, this is tends for people who are more sensitive and, and, and so and so forth. You have to position it in such a way that you're not promising everything to everyone mm-hmm. so that people can find what they think they want. So I don't I don't want to make this like too heavy of a conversation, but I feel like it's really important. We're talking about female sexuality and we're talking about how individual and how personal it is. And you've committed your life to helping people have the sex lives they want. And we're currently in a time in the upheaval of Harvey Weinstein and Larry Nasser and the Me Too movement where, you know, the metaphorical scab has been ripped off. And so, 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 so many women have been faced with reliving or otherwise re-experiencing some sort of sexual trauma and all manner of unpleasantness related to their own sexuality. And so this is also a time of healing, right? It's a profound opportunity for healing and empowerment and positive change. And so I'm wondering where you see yourself, your role, and your products in this current climate and how you can support this healing and positive change. Yeah. I mean, we have always been in support of female empowerment from the beginning and, and that has always been the case from the inception of the company. And this movement has been happening for a long time and recently has picked up great momentum and, and and it's amazing. I mean, like you said, there's just so many aspects to sex. You know, right now we're hearing about so much about the sexual abuse of power. Mm-hmm. And yet there's also another side to self-love that is empowering. And there's so much that's in between. And what we've always tried to do is support the empowerment of women through our products. And also almost provide air cover to open up conversations around sex through the projects we do. Because sometimes getting people to talk about you know, these issues is half the battle. And if we really want to change perception, we need to start having some difficult conversations about it. What I appreciate so much about what you're doing is you're, by elevating the actual product design and by fusing it with things like wearables and jewelry, you're removing a lot of the shame and stigma to having conversations like this. I mean, I feel like these discussions that we have, they're difficult now, but they don't always need to be so difficult. Yeah, and... When you change the design language of a product, it shapes how people, I mean, as we know, as designers, we know people interact differently to different products depending mm-hmm. on how it speaks to them. And so, you know, one of our products 
there's just a, I think a great example of this that really helps people to open up conversations is our necklace. It's called Vesper. It's a jewelry piece. It's a very slim, compact vibrator that's also a, a statement necklace. And what we found was that, I mean, one of the reasons we created this was because we noticed that people wanted to talk about sex and pleasure, mm-hmm. but yet the on-ramp into talking about that, it's just not, it's just, it's just, I mean, when, if the landscape of products are nothing but phallic-shaped dildos, you know, and aggressive <laughs> butt plugs, you'd be like, how am I supposed to talk about this? It's really hard, you know? Whereas if you have a necklace that's super elegant and people are wearing it, they're bringing this, you know, taking this to brunch, they're taking this to mm-hmm. dinner, they're taking this on dates. And then suddenly, next thing you know, over brunch with your girlfriends or at a party, you're suddenly having a conversation around this. Yeah. And it's so much easier to talk about this when things don't look like, you know, you know, not great things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. And so much, I think, of, of healing is aspirating the wound meaning like bringing light to things so that they can come up for discussion so that the hard parts can be sort of worked out gently and in safe places Mm -hmm. and with people that you Mm -hmm. trust yeah absolutely and another thing that we do because we we recognize you know products is one aspect but another thing that as a brand that we've noticed is that you know to create that conversation it's also through other things, like we just released the Crave Portrait Project, but it is a gorgeous two-part photo series, black and white, of people at the really famous Folsom Street Fair in San Francisco. So the Folsom Street Fair is basically a BDSM fair that is held annually in San Francisco and is where people of the kink um, community come together and they just have a, a massive street party. And so we set up a photo booth because where our factory is located is right in the heart of it. We literally just lifted up our garage door and we set up a photo booth. It's a one-day event, so people were just completely decked out in their outfits, and they were just amazing. So we had them come in, and we take a portrait of them in their full gear. And we took about over 160 photos that day. And from there, we got down to about 50 or so. We asked them to come back in their everyday clothes, and just like their everyday work clothes. And it's a portrait of them side by side. And even though we don't make products for BDSM, but mm-hmm. it goes to show that we really support people owning their pleasure, whatever that may be. And when you look at the portraits, for me, it wasn't even about the BDSM. What, but what it was about was about the power of self-expression and how the human sexuality, how we want to express ourselves, you know, sexually in an everyday life, it's just so multi-layered and so complicated. And that depth is, is what makes just this whole project so beautiful and so humanizing. So that for us is, is this is one of the ways that we really help to show people that we, we really celebrate people owning their pleasure. Beautiful. What a great project. Yeah. I'm going to pivot and talk to you about you as a person. I'm really interested. (laughs) I know you're a lovely person, but you've also described yourself as an introvert, but you do a lot of, of public events and speaking and 
you talk very openly about a subject that a lot of people blush talking about. So I'm, I'm interested to learn, like, how do you handle all of that? Do you like, you know, go out, do your thing and then like stay in bed for three days and recover afterwards <laughs> and like refuel or like, how, how does that work? Uh, you nailed it. I mean, I don't have luxury <laughs> for three days, but simply for me to do the social things I need to do, I need to be antisocial, <laughs> simply put. <laughs> is it in equal proportion, do you think, or is it like a buffer on both sides? I, for me, it's a buffer on both sides. Mm, okay. So, yeah. Uh, before talks, for example, um, I like to have just ample time to get to the hotel and sometimes I just like hold myself up for a day, you know, just have nothing but room service and or food delivery or whatever, and, you know, take bath to just kind of calm my nerves because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how many times I've, I've done, you know, talks or interviews or any, anything, it, I 100% still get nervous because I appreciate the opportunity to be able to tell my story and I appreciate people giving me a platform to, to share my story and I don't take it for granted. So, so the nerves is always there. And I just, you know, want to make sure that I can coherently share my, my, my thoughts and ideas when I'm at conferences and I'm overwhelmed by the number of people who introduce themselves to me and, and say hello and I love meeting them. But that really takes so much out of me. And mm-hmm. so basically right afterwards, I kind of just, I'm in just like shutdown mode. I mean, even when I travel, like when I go to the airport, I try not to have to speak to another person. <laughs> I don't mean that's the point of being rude, but just that I, I'm just extremely quiet and very like, I have my hoodie on, you know, I have like my beanie and I'm just kind of like, you know, I don't know, probably some dodgy figure moving through the airport, you know, but it's just the way how I cope with being able to be on when I need to, and then also keep my sanity. Yes. I can relate to that. I I love a hoodie <laughs> and I love being super stealth in, in the airport and places. I I know that I need to decompress, I think, more than others mm-hmm. after public speaking situations. And I mm-hmm. also need yeah. peace yeah. beforehand yeah. in order to get prepared yeah. for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not a natural speaker. And it's really one of those things that I feel like. You know, as an entrepreneur, you want to do everything you can to, to make, you know, the business work. And when you're a small company, you know, we don't have the budget to hire a spokesperson. Mm-hmm. Out of necessity, as an entrepreneur, as a co-founder, you just have to do whatever it takes, you know, within your power. And, and being able to put myself out there to talk about what I do, why it's important, is just something that I've had to you know, learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as like small businesses, you just need to wear multiple hats. And if that hat is something you're not comfortable with, you don't really have a choice. You just kind of have to do it. Like I hate public speaking too, but Mm. you know, for some reason, like I didn't expect my blog to get popular enough where people would want to interview me. So like (laughs) I had a blog because I wanted to hide behind my computer and be an introvert, (laughs) but somehow I I have a podcast, <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay. Now I want to channel your idealism and focus on the future. Can you give us like a, a one sentence picture of optimism to shoot for? Like in your work, you're working on eliminating the shame and guilt associated with sex, sex toys and female sexuality. 
what is what does that mean for our culture? If we're able to actually really reduce the amount of shame and guilt associated with female sexuality, what does that look like? It's beautiful, oh, right? Man. Yeah, like it's like the promised land. I mean, yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's green it's grass really, and wildflowers everywhere. Totally, and like rainbows and puppies sucking at your toes and beautiful <laughs> yeah. flowers everywhere. You know. I do think that if we can fully own our pleasure without being apologetic to ourselves or feeling the shame or anything that's related to society's view on what, you know, you should be, I think people really pursue their own pleasure. I think only good comes from that. People live happier, more fulfilled lives, and, and, and it's all good. So my, you know, highest idealism is, hey, maybe it'll lead to world peace, <laughs> you know, yeah. happier, happier women, happier mothers, you know, happier families and happier families produce happier children and, you know, children lead on to be better adults and, you know, maybe it'll lead to world peace. <laughs> I, I believe so. it can. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was just thinking about that <laughs> and I was like, yeah, maybe that really would work. Okay. Well, that is a beautiful picture. And now I'm interested in are you personally fulfilled? I know that was a big motivator when you started this. And what is the next milestone in your own self-actualization? Wow. Um, so I think about that Maslow's, you know, pyramid of hierarchy. And for me, he's missing mine, which is simply paying off my student loans. That would be great. <laughs> yes. Thanks. <laughs> That's it. Seriously. <laughs> But do you, I mean, do you feel like, you know, when you first walked up to, I don't remember who it was you talked to in, in London, but you were like, I want to design products for women. And they were like, well, you know, you really should leave then. <laughs> Are you, do you feel like you're like, yeah, well, see, take that. I'm totally designing products for women. And it's really empowering. Like, do you feel that in your soul? Do you feel like you've really come full circle to what you really wanted to do in the very beginning? Absolutely. Absolutely. I really am grateful and so thankful for me to be able to do what I do and have a company whose mission is completely aligned with my moral compass. And being able to do this, I'm so eternally grateful. I'm incredibly fulfilled in that way. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also just the people that I work with and also all the amazing supporters that we get, love letters we get from users and, and, and just people and on social media. So all of that just is incredibly rewarding. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think like when you, when you design a product that's as intimate as what you're designing and you get, you know, letters from people, I mean, you could really change people's lives. I mean, it's not like you're designing a hairbrush. You're literally designing something that, you know, gives them pleasure and, and changes their mood and their outlook on life and could literally change their life. And their relationships. Yeah. And let's be really, really clear. There is very much a ripple effect that benefits all of society when half of mm-hmm. society is feeling healthy, loving, mm-hmm and fulfilled, Mm -hmm. then the other half only benefits and the relationships only grow more fertile and more healthy. 
It's like the book Half the Sky, I mean, which is exactly what you're saying is that the oppression of women and, and girls, you know, around the world, and if we really want to move towards a better society, you know, starts with supporting women. Yes, absolutely. So where's Crave going? What's next for you? What's next for Crave? What kind of projects are you working on right now? I hope we crave and as a society, we're moving towards a world where the attitude around sex is open and healthy, where shame, stigma around female pleasure is outdated and archaic, you know, as silly as the notion that the world is flat. Yes. So that would be great. So what's next for Crave? We have just finished renovating a 1961 Airstream that we have turned into a vibrator factory, a design studio, and a pop-up retail shop. What? That sounds amazing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I am currently on the road. And me and my little puppy, Mac, we are driving this across America to different towns, events, and conferences. So if you guys want us to stop in, give us a shout, (gasps) and we'd love to see you. I love it. Oh, my God. But that world peace thing you talked about is going to happen sooner than we thought. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) Where can our listeners go to find out more about you and more about Crave on the web and social media? So my Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the same is designer T, designer T-I, one word. You can find me there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, T. This has been really cool. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. I'm not kidding. I really do think a big component of world peace is women owning their pleasure and not being oppressed and definitely not using their sexuality against them. Yes, I'm total agreement with you. I don't know why we've just kind of let this go on so long where we're like ashamed. (laughs) Yeah, and you know what? I also think that there is a a tendency on the part of men to feel like if women are doing something for women that it's inherently anti-man. Mm. It's not. It is not. It is not. It is for the good of all. <laughs> it is for the good of our children. It is for the good of our sisters. It is for the good of our lovers. It's for the good of all humanity. Amen. <laughs> I mean that. <laughs> I totally agree. And I think, you know, she's really helping push that forward a lot with what she's doing. Not only just like the designing part of the products, but like all the education and all of the research she does and all of the events and the speaking engagements that she does to spread the word about this. That like, hey, like we need to talk about it. Yeah. Destigmatizing the conversation. Yeah, exactly. It's not a dirty subject. It shouldn't be. No, and I love that she created this necklace because it's like you can wear it and then like if you have a conversation about it, it's less awkward because it's not like you're wearing a giant like pink, like you know, like cartoony dildo around your neck. It's like a very tasteful <laughs> necklace <laughs> and it's attractive, but hey, it also has this really great functionality, you know, that's like a hidden secret. It doesn't look like a phallus with two articulated testicles attached to it. (laughs) Yeah, I think women designing products for women is really, really important because men sometimes, I'm not saying that men do a bad job. I mean, they've done a great job with 
bum things. But I think, you know, women know women's bodies best, but also women understand that one size doesn't fit all, all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think knowing that you can design or have like lots of different products that satisfy different needs is really important. I think women designing for women is important, but I also think, and I loved her story about her co-founder is if you don't happen to be a woman, if you don't happen to have this inside perspective as to what it's like to be a woman, it's very easy to ask a bunch of questions and listen to the answers and gain a lot of information that way. Yeah, I mean, it's just standard design R&D. I mean, for any other project, it's just a subject that's a little bit, you know, more intimate and maybe more uncomfortable for some people to talk about. But it's really important. It's it's really important in the same way there is a, a saying that you can't really love anyone else unless you can love yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, it's pretty true. And se- your own sexuality is part of knowing yourself and loving yourself. And if you can't wrap your head around that, then it's going to be really hard for all of your relationships to flourish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you look across humanity and see all of the relationships flourishing, dude, this is a completely different world. Oh, and you know what we didn't talk about? That she's the, she does these women in design, women in industrial design meetups. And so she's also not only helping women have orgasms or better sex lives, she's also helping women in industrial design, whether they're sharing ideas or they're just educating people on industrial design. I love that she's fostering the female community and empowering Yes, them. and she's the chair of IDSA San Francisco. So she mm-hmm. is all in on product design, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I just lost my train of thought. I'm just giving you a private moment with your own sexuality, Jane. <laughs> <laughs> if you hear any buzzing, don't pay attention. <laughs> Oh, my God. Hey, you guys, thanks for listening. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would, take a moment to rate and review us. That totally helps. Go to cleverpodcast.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of T's work. Also connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We'd love to continue the conversation with you there and hear your thoughts about this episode. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris and Alex Perez with music by L1011. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.